Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Paul Dagramji. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I'd like to welcome you and thank you for joining us for today's CMEO briefcase entitled, More Than Just Sleepiness, Impact of EDS in Patients with OSA. Today's program is sponsored by an educational grant from Exome Therapeutics. I'm a senior family physician at Collegeville Family Practice and medical director at Ursinus College in Collegeville, Pennsylvania. We're excited to speak to you today, so let's go over our learning objective. Our learning objective for today is to identify the quality of life impact of persistent EDS, excessive daytime sleepiness, in patients with OSA, obstructive sleep apnea, including those who are CPAP adherents, uh, that's continuous positive airway pressure. To start our activity, let's meet our patient, Hector. Hello, Hector. How are you today? Hi, Dr. D. Yes, I'm doing okay. I think CPAP uh, has been working for me since the last time we saw each other. Mm -hmm. I still find myself uh, being tired and in a daze during the day. I'm sorry to hear you aren't feeling great, Hector, but I'm glad you have some improvement with your CPAP. Uh, I know last time I saw you, you were about three months into the CPAP therapy, and there was, and you were still struggling at that time. Could you tell me what's changed since then? Sure. You know, at three months, I was still struggling with the equipment and getting used to sleeping with a mask on my face. I wasn't sleeping more than three or four hours with it on because, well, I take it off in my sleep and I wasn't feeling much better. I was still really sleepy during the day and wow, it was like my head was in the clouds. But now I can sleep about six hours with it on. Now I feel more rested during the day and I can think a little clearer. I don't feel as worried that I would cause an accident at work anymore. And that's been nice. It's not perfect, but it's somewhat better. Well, I'm glad you have some improvement in your sleep. And we definitely want you to get into to the point where you feel good and you're especially not worried about your workplace accidents anymore. You said that even though you've had some improvements, you still are feeling tired. Now, could you tell me more about that experience that you're having? What does that experience feel like, that tiredness? It's been five months on CPAP now, and I was hoping I would feel better by now, but I still feel sleepy during the day. It's not as bad as it was before, and huh, it's been great feeling somewhat better after being so tired for so many years, but I still find myself dozing off at work. Hmm. I also still feel like I can't think very clearly, even though that has improved too, but it worries me. Okay, another big thing I worry about is being able to spend meaningful time with my kids and grandkids. 
and, you know, I was hoping CPAP would give me enough energy to keep up with them, <laughs> but I still don't feel like I can. Sometimes it takes a while to adjust to CPAP, and even those who do well on CPAP can still be sleepy during the day. But over time, with CPAP, and perhaps with the use of certain medications, we could improve the sleepiness and cognitive issues you've been having. So let's talk about a game plan. Sounds great to me. So Hector is a 51-year-old black male with severe obstructive sleep apnea initiated on CPAP five months ago. It's caused workplace damage while operating heavy machinery at his work. At baseline, experienced heavy snoring, awakening four to five times a night with shortness of breath, cognitive impairment during the day that has worsened over the years. He's experienced some relief with CPAP with improved focus at work, but he still complains of sleepiness during the day. His past history is significant for obesity, hypertension, and reflux. At baseline, his apnea hypopnea index puts him at the severe level with 41 episodes per hour. But with CPAP, this has diminished greatly down to an AHI of six. His BMI is 33, which puts him in the obese category. His ESS, Epworth Sleepiness Scale, is at 13, which is still abnormal. And his functional outcome of sleep questionnaire, his FOSQ, is also abnormal at 14. His blood pressure is just borderline at 138 over 86. Now let's talk a little bit about obstructive sleep apnea. We all know that basically what this is, is an obstruction of the airway that occurs during sleep. This can be complete, which is complete cessation of airflow. And this is scored by 10 seconds or longer of an apneic episode or a partial collapse, which is a decrease in the blood oxygenation or a decrease in the flow that is considered to be significant. These are all uh, considered to be part of the apnea hypopnea index measurement. This is characterized by intermittent hypoxia where the oxygen saturation level does go down. Patients will complain of choking or gasping during sleep, but their bed partners will complain of them as being loud snores. And this can be very loud hurt across the entire household in some cases. As a result of this, sleep becomes fragmented and it is non-restorative. And what that means is that the patient feels as if they haven't slept well. That feeling can occur first thing in the morning when they get up, or it can occur at various times throughout the day. This feeling like they're tired. Uh, sometimes patients will say to you they're that way all throughout the day, or sometimes they say it will hit me in the early afternoon or late afternoon, or just when I get home at night, I feel like I'm exhausted. So the non-restorative sleep feeling can occur at any time. And this is excessive daytime sleepiness, okay? This is where patients feel like they are drowsy. Uh, what's drowsiness? Well, you all know what drowsy is. It's the feeling you get right before you want to go to sleep. Let's say your bedtime is around 11 o'clock or so. You're getting drowsy at that time. Imagine having that feeling throughout the day. That's considered excessive daytime sleepiness. So there's appropriate sleepiness, which is what occurs right before bedtime, and there's excessive daytime sleepiness, which is pathologic, which occurs as a result of these obstructive episodes 
that these patients are having uh, in their uh, nighttime. The prevalence and demographics of OSA may be surprising to you. There have been a lot of studies that have been done. One done many years ago suggested that one out of 10 women um, and one out of four men have obstructive sleep apnea. But currently we think that between 25 and 30% of men have obstructive sleep apnea and nine to 17% of women have obstructive sleep apnea. It is much more common in those that are obese, but keep in mind that 30% of patients with obstructive sleep apnea are not obese. So if somebody comes into you and they're not obese, it does not automatically exclude them from having obstructive sleep apnea. It is more common in certain ethnicities, including Hispanics, Blacks, and Asian populations. These could be as a result of weight, or it could simply be because of how, how their, their uh, facial structures are oriented. Now, by age 50, women are as likely as men to have obstructive sleep apnea. What that means is that estrogen is somewhat protective. And as they lose their estrogen, their airways become a lot more flaccid, and they have a much higher probability of developing obstructive sleep apnea. So a male or female in their 70s and 80s uh, they both have the same incidence, their same occurrences of obstructive sleep apnea. All right, here's an audience response question for you. Which of the following is accurate regarding the pathophysiology of Hector's obstructive sleep apnea-related excessive daytime sleepiness? The primary driver of OSA-related EDS is neuronal damage in wake-promoting areas of the brain. That's the correct answer. And if you take a look at the pathophysiology of excessive daytime sleepiness and sleep apnea, we see two sides of it. We see on the left side, intermittent hypoxia. These patients have hypoxia that's occurring all through the night. And this isn't just occurring now and then. It's occurring every night for weeks and months and years on end. And as a result of this, there is oxidative injury, which has actually been proven in laboratory testing. There's oxidative injury and injury and degeneration of dopaminergic and noradrenergic neurons in the VPG and LC. The, the, the VPG is the ventral periaqueductal gray area, and the LC is the locus ceruleus, very important areas in keeping you awake. So there is oxidative injury that occurs as a result of intermittent hypoxia. But on the right-hand side there, as a result of sleep, fragmentation. There can be injury and degeneration of noradrenergic and oxidative neurons as well in the locus ceruleus. Both of these can then lead to neuronal damage in the wake-promoting brain regions, causing excessive daytime sleepiness and the behavioral wake symptoms. So this is a very important thing to remember and to tell your patients that as a result of obstructive sleep apnea, there may be permanent neurologic damage that can only necessarily be improved possibly by medication. And it's also very important when you're talking to your patients about obstructive sleep apnea, when you first see them for it, to tell them that if they don't get treatment for it, they may be looking for these problems occurring that you don't want them to occur, this intermittent hypoxia and sleep fragmentation. Now, there are some personal impacts of excessive daytime sleepiness. Patients with EDS are much more likely to feel depressed. We have data on this that shows that patients with depression 
are much more likely to have obstructive sleep apnea. But there's also a very serious consequence of excessive daytime sleepiness to the patient as well as those around them. And that's increased motor vehicle accidents and occupational accidents, making mistakes as a result of these micro sleeps where patients will just nod off while they're working. And this can be very damaging and as well their brain not working well, uh, uh, making the wrong decision, whether it's on the highway or during, let's say, industrial situations. Their attention and memory can be impacted. How many times have you had your patients come in and say to you, there's something wrong with my ability to focus and concentrate. I'm not recalling things as well. My memory isn't as good. I'm not able to figure things out as well. If that occurs in a patient in their 40s, 50s, or 60s, you really should be considering the possibility of obstructive sleep apnea. Impaired higher order executive functioning. The higher order executive function, again, has to do with thinking, concentrating, and figuring things out. If this is a problem with one of your patients, if they're thinking that their mind is dull, they have brain fog, so to speak, this is a possibility that it could be excessive sleepiness, EDS from obstructive sleep apnea. Here's another audience response for you. Which of the following is true regarding Hector's CPAP use? 25% of patients like Hector still have excessive daytime sleepiness even after five months of CPAP use. So what we're saying here is even if you get rid of the apnea, you completely get rid of the obstruction, the patient is able to sleep, stay asleep, and, then, and do well with their ability to breathe, there's still a problem. But let's take a look at some of the statistics on the, the adherence. Now, of course, we know that continuous positive airway pressure is the gold standard for obstructive sleep apnea. But 33 to 50% of patients fail CPAP and they continue to struggle with their sleep apnea and excessive daytime sleepiness. Have you had patients who come and say, I just threw my machine away, I can't do it. Or others who say, I'm using my machine and I'm, and I'm still tired throughout the day. This can happen. Over 25% of patients succeeding at CPAP by five months follow-up, a five-month follow-up, have residual excessive daytime sleepiness. So there's, again, the patients with CPAP success will continue to have excessive daytime sleepiness for the reasons that we discussed earlier, the sleep fragmentation and also the chronic hypoxemia. And finally, oral appliances, which are second-line therapy, are not associated with improvement in excessive daytime sleepiness. You know, I do sometimes refer my patients uh, to a uh, specific dentist who does oral appliances, uh, but I'm a little bit leery of doing so because uh, there's not as much evidence that shows that if you get rid of their obstruction that you're going to improve their excessive daytime sleepiness. Now, excessive daytime sleepiness compared to CPAP adherence, what we see here is that when we look at two parameters, the Epworth sleepiness scale and the functional outcome of sleep questionnaire, we find that the hours of nightly CPAP use correlates with improvements in ESS and FOSQ. And this is a very important thing, therefore, to, uh, to uh, uh, suggest to your patients that they should be as adherent as possible for as long as possible throughout the night uh, with their CPAP. So CPAP use is associated with decreased EDS. And the notable findings are that 75% of patients 
using less than two hours per night had excessive daytime sleepiness, whereas 52% of patients uh, using CPAP uh, seven hours or more per night had less excessive daytime sleepiness. So, so you can see that again, what we wanna do is to make sure that we get rid of the airway obstruction for as many hours as possible throughout the night to lessen excessive daytime sleepiness. Now, this is a very important study showing that excessive sleepiness may persist despite six hours or more of CPAP use per night. Now, this is a multi-centered multi trial with 128 patients with an AHI in the moderate to severe range at 15 and above with obstructive sleep apnea treated with CPAP for three months or longer and assessed for sleepiness before and after airway treatment using the three parameters, the EPRA sleepiness scale, the functional outcome of sleep questionnaire, and the MSLT, which is the multiple sleep latency score, the latency test. The ESS we know about, it's an eight-point question that we ask our patients about how drowsy they are. It's a subjective test. The MSLT is an objective test where we put patients into a, a room and we tell them to, to try to fall asleep over a 20-minute period of time. And this is done at four time intervals throughout the day. And we find out the degree objectively of their sleepiness. And the functional outcome of sleep questionnaire, the FOSQ, uh, talks about their level of, of, uh, of improvement in their sleep as they're occurring throughout the day. And what we find here is that 22% of patients who are using CPAP adequately for three months or longer continue to have abnormal EPRA sleepiness scale. So one out of five will continue to have abnormal ESS. One out of two will continue to have an abnormal MSLT. And one out of three will continue to have an abnormal FOSQ. So even if patients are using their CPAP as adequately as they possibly can, and in this case, um, they're using it for three months or longer and using their, their uh, uh, CPAP for six hours or longer, they continue to have excessive daytime sleepiness as measured by these three different parameters. Now, in a survey of health-related quality of life, the uh, HRQOL, of patients with excessive daytime sleepiness and obstructive sleep apnea, let's take a look at this. This was a survey that was done, um, which included patients with obstructive sleep apnea with excessive daytime sleepiness, and those are patients in dark blue, compared to those with obstructive sleep apnea without excessive daytime sleepiness, and those are the bar graphs in gray and compared with non-obstructive sleep apnea patients. And as you can see on the left-hand side there, their mental component and physical component, both of them were substantially less with OSA, with EDS, compared with those with non-OSA, but also those with OSA with, uh, without EDS still also had some quality impairment, both mental component and physical component. So clearly, obstructive sleep apnea, whether you do or don't have excessive daytime sleepiness will affect your quality of life, but not as much if you don't have excessive daytime sleepiness. In the middle part, you can see uh, uh, data with respect to presenteeism, which means how well you're working when you are present at work. The middle one, work impairment, 
And finally, activity impairment. And again, you can see a similar kind of a pattern where those with obstructive sleep apnea and EDS suffered much greater with their lack of presenteeism, work impairment, and activity impairment compared to those with OSA without EDS and non-OSA patients, but also <clears throat> patients with OSA and without EDS, they did not do as well as patients with no OSA whatsoever. Again, when it came to the parameters of presenteeism, work impairment, and activity impairment. On the right side, uh, a general quality of life measurement. What we can see, again, if we can summarize, is that those with obstructive sleep apnea and EDS had the lowest quality of life compared to those with non-OSA, and also those with OSA without EDS still also had a diminution in their quality of life compared to those with no OSA. It's very interesting as far as the comorbidities in patients with obstructive sleep apnea. As a primary care provider, I see patients come in with all sorts of problems, especially and including depression, reflux, asthma, angina. And these four specific conditions are in higher amounts in patients who have obstructive sleep apnea. And you can take a look at the data there. Depression is much more likely to occur in patients with obstructive sleep apnea. Reflux is much more likely to occur in patients with OSA. Asthma is more likely to occur in patients with OSA. And finally, angina or really coronary artery disease, much more likely to occur in patients with obstructive sleep apnea. So what this may want to say to you is that patients that have depression, look out for the possibility of sleep apnea. Same with reflux, asthma, and angina. Look for the possibility that these patients have obstructive sleep apnea. But also look at it maybe in another way as well, where patients with obstructive sleep apnea, look to them to see if they in fact have depression, look to see if they have reflux, look to see if they have asthma, and look to see if they have uh, coronary artery disease. So some of the common comorbidities then are, are, as we've said already, depression and reflux are two of them, but also obesity. As we've already said, 70% of patients with obstructive sleep apnea are obese. Uh, and those, of course, have BMIs greater than 30. Um, patients are much more likely to have hypertension, especially resistant hypertension, and especially patients with AHIs that are in the severe range. Those tend to have uh, the most difficult blood pressures to control. It's not unusual to have those patients with three or more blood pressure medications, and they're still not under control. We also have type 2 diabetes in these patients. They're more likely to occur. So the multi-morbidity and overall comorbidity of sleep apnea in a, in a finished study showed that 63% of patients with OSA were multi-morbid versus 38% of the general population, and 34% of patients with OSA had four or more comorbidities versus 14% of the general population. Simply put, you're going to see these patients much more commonly in your office, so you have ample opportunity to diagnose sleep apnea if, they, if you have these patients with these comorbidities, ample opportunity to diagnose them and treat them properly. So let's take the patient case, Hector, who's a 51-year-old Hispanic male. We talked about this with severe sleep apnea. Now, he's been on CPAP, doing very well on it for five months, but he's still having some quality of life issues. What can we do about that? Well, 
medication may not be a bad idea for a patient like this. Uh, and there are uh, several different medicines that have come out, uh, including modafinil, armodafinil, and solreanthetol, uh, which can reduce the, uh, 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 the daytime sleepiness and improve its quality of life. Which comorbidities are concerning regarding Hector? We want to make sure that we tell Hector about the possibility of depression, blood pressure, reflux, coronary artery disease, um, and diabetes and obesity. And we want to make sure that we address them with Hector uh, very specifically. And, and oftentimes what we can tell them is that if the obesity can improve, his AHI may also improve. Uh, and keep in mind that even if you get rid of obesity completely, uh, that it does not necessarily mean that the sleep apnea will go away completely. But we should try to help Hector with his uh, weight, if possible, so that we can improve his quality of life, but also improve his uh, obstructive sleep apnea. We talked about this a little bit, but what can we do to approach Hector's excessive daytime sleepiness? Like I said, there are three medications that were specifically indicated for the drowsiness, the excessive daytime sleepiness of patients with obstructive sleep apnea. We can certainly ask Hector if he's interested in a medication like this. And then what are our next steps? We should be seeing a patient like Hector very regularly. He has a lot of comorbidities. Chances are we're seeing him every three months for his diabetes. And every time he comes in, we should be asking him about his daytime sleepiness. Perhaps what we're doing is asking him general questions about how do you feel throughout the day? How is your mind working? How is your ability to focus and concentrate? And how is your energy level? But maybe also do an Epworth sleepiness scale on Hector every time he comes in to see if there's something we can do if he still has any deficiencies in those categories. Let's summarize our discussion with our SMART goals. Specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. That is, what I hope that you will take from this presentation to apply to your practice is the following. Acknowledge that excessive daytime sleepiness may persist despite adherence, as best adherence, to CPAP in patients with obstructive sleep apnea. Develop a heightened awareness of the impact of excessive daytime sleepiness on quality of life, encompassing its consequences on professional performance, psychological and social well-being, and cognitive functioning. Distinguish comorbidities in patients that are associated with OSA and their significance in relation to a patient's long-term health. This MEO briefcase is part of a three-part series of case-based activities that can be found on the Sleep Disorders Hub. I hope you'll check out the other two activities in the series. The Sleep Disorders Hub has these activities and many others on obstructive sleep apnea, excessive daytime sleepiness, idiopathic hypersomnia, narcolepsy, and more. Thank you for joining me today. Be safe and take care of yourselves so you can provide the best care for your patients.